0: My idea was to start the picture with no camera movement, just people sitting at telephones doing their work. Then the camera starts to move as the people become more manic. The action becomes more intense. Finally, at the end, I did the longest move of the picture, erased by Redford and Hoffman the complete length of the newsroom. In a picture with so many words, there's a tendency to overuse the camera. I try not to. Those are words from director Alan J. Bakula on Gordon Willis's work on 1976's All the president's men. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking all the president's men. Quick synopsis of the film is, the Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein uncover the details of the Watergate scandal that leads to President Richard Nixon's resignation. Tagline for the film is, at times it looked like it might cost them their jobs, their reputations, and maybe even their lives. The film stars Dustin Hoffman as Carl Bernstein, Robert Redford as Bob Woodward, Jack Warden as Harry Rosenfeld, and Martin Balsam as Howard Simons. It's written by William Goldman, based on the book by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, cinematography by Gordon Willis, directed by Alan J. Bakula, edited by Robert L. Wolf, and music by David Shire. Today I have Hannah and Brian Loomis with me. They're from What a Picture podcast, a podcast that I really love. And they're going through the sight and sound list. So they're covering the best of the best. And some of the films every week, I'm just so jealous because I'm like, I can't wait to get to those on my end because they're such great, great films. So Brian and Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks
2: for having Absolutely. us.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having us.
2: It's a blast. Already, we haven't even gotten right? started. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a blast rewatching the movie for sure.
0: Exactly. It's been a hot minute since I've seen it, but I- I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about how your podcast started and where you're at within the list.
1: Yeah, sure. I think it started because we just sort of started spitballing the idea when the 2022 Sight and Sight Top 100 came out and featured some sort of surprising shakeups and we were like oh and particularly neither of us had seen Jean Dielman yet and so which is the number 1 on that list mm-hmm. yeah it was sort of and then going through it was like there i i thought i had a pretty good knowledge of film uh and had seen a lot of the classics but we were just both missing a lot of the the films on there and so we started talking about wa- watching through the whole thing and then started talking uh, you know if we were gonna watch through them all and talk about them anyway we started mm-hmm. talking about doing a podcast as well which had sort of been an idea that we'd had for a while but yeah just got started in in January. We're about to hit movie number fifty, which I'm excited about, and it's been wow. a real blast uh doing the podcast so yeah, anything you'd add Hannah?
2: Oh, I would just add you know Brian and I are uh married, and for maybe half of our marriage so far have been like kind of coaxing each other into the idea of doing a podcast um mm-hmm. not really about anything in particular, but over the past couple of years. Brian especially has really been diving into movies and he's kind of been bringing me on board to the ones he knows I'd like and knows me well enough to not bother to show me the ones he knows I won't like. Yeah, (laughs) But uh, we, we thought this would be a fun, just a fun experiment to do. We, Felicia, we talked, you know, before we started recording about having young kids and Brian and I are out of the fog of having newborns and have toddlers, which is you know, its own type of chaos, but does allow us a little bit more um, emotional bandwidth and just freedom to explore new things together. So this is really just, you know, a fun new thing we get to do that we can do at home. We don't have to, you know, go out, hire babysitters, do all that. We can watch movies after the kids go to bed, talk about them after they go to bed, and do that for the next hundred movies or so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because that's essentially my life too. <laughs> you know? I have, I mean, I just have the one, but still just bedtime is when I'm like, okay, now I get to sit down and watch at least one, to two movies, depending on length, depending on when she decided she was going to go to bed. So <laughs> I look forward, I love the whole day, but I look forward to my downtime of watching a movie. And it's great that you get to do it together. I think that's great. I was going to ask actually before we get into like, Your background in cinema. Uh I know Hannah, you don't have Letterboxer. I follow Brian. And I'm looking Mm. at the number and I thought I watched a lot of movies, but I'm like, damn, that's a lot. And do you guys watch (laughs) you saying you might not watch all of them together, but they're like a good portion you watch together?
2: Well, Brian, you could answer that better than I can. I would say not a lot, but maybe Yeah.
1: (laughs) I've watched quite a bit this year especially Mm -hmm. because i feel like i'm trying to get caught up on all of the things that i should have already seen but hannah will watch some of them with me as we go i think hannah actually had more growing up of a background in especially like old hollywood stuff and hitchcock Mm -hmm. and her parents really loved that and and introed her to to a lot of that sort of thing. I had been exposed to a couple of things, like It's a Wonderful Life, that sort of classic Casablanca, some of those classics, but really didn't, you know, we'd, when we got married, started, we both really loved uh, following the Oscars and the, the mm-hmm. sort of current movie, critically acclaimed type of stuff. And so... We got into that for a while, and then I got into international stuff, maybe like three or four years ago, and then things have just really exploded from there this year for me.
2: Yeah, Brian will like go to the gym and do an hour and a half on the exercise bike so he can watch an (laughs) entire movie. Yeah. Um. So he's really got kind of his his own journey with movies, and then maybe twenty five percent he'll watch with me. I. I'm also like very big into TV shows and podcasts. So my media is very mixed. I I appreciate a classic if and I, I do trust Brian's judgment if he's like, hey, I really think you should watch this, like Rashomon. I'm like,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I, it maybe took me a couple of years, but I eventually, you know, it's like, okay, let's mm-hmm. watch this. Or what did you just show me, Brian, that you that
1: the before trilogy we've watched yes. the first too. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. So that's he the was sort right. Of thing. I loved it. Yeah. So well. I think I loved it. We've only watched the first two, but okay. <laughs> so that's it's been a fun thing. It is nice to kind of have it's a thing that we do together, but we both have our own little offshoots that we can do by ourselves which exactly by i see
0: no that's yeah. that's great. <laughs> I love that. I love just hearing about people's film journeys and where they're at and where they're headed so. That's great. It's great. You get to share it with someone, too. And also know that some films you're like, I am not going to like this. So,
1: (laughs) you know, filter
0: it out for me. Have a filter. So that's great.
1: Yeah, doing the podcast together has been a blast because I feel like most of our hobbies prior to this year have been somewhat independent. I mean, we've always watched stuff together, Mm -hmm. but having like a shared passion and interest in something has been really neat. So,
2: Especially with young kids, where sometimes it's like, I'll watch them, you go get your alone time. You watch them, I'll go get my alone time. And it's, I mean, it's great to have a partner to be able to do that with, but then Mm -hmm. you're just kind of on your own independent thing. So you, Mm. you make it work. You got to.
0: (laughs) I second that. (laughs) (laughs) Today we're talking about all the President's Men.
2: Yeah. And we're
0: talking about it in the scope of gordon Wills' work but before we get into that we've all watched this film before this viewing do you both remember the first time you watched it why you would have watched it and what your initial thoughts
2: were on that first watch essentially right you showed it to me right like recently Mm -hmm. like within the last 18 months maybe was my first time
1: Mm -hmm. um yeah we'd Gone yeah. back to some of the like important new Hollywood stuff and seen seen a bit of it sort of here and there a couple of years ago, I feel like, but I'd always just heard really great things and knew it was one of the like really important movies of that era that we needed to uh check out. And so we watched it together, yeah, a couple of years ago.
2: Yeah, I feel like there's so many movies, especially when you're getting Into more cinema, like not just, you know, current Oscars, but you're looking back Mm -hmm. and you, like you said, Brian, like the big important ones. And of course, you go to the big important American ones first. And this is one where it's like, I know it's about, like, I know Watergate, I know Woodward and Bernstein. Like, I love that this is based on their book. I didn't realize it was like that close to it, but you know, it was always like, I'll get to it. I'm not like not excited to watch it, but there's so much to see. So, (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's nice to have Brian push me towards it. Because I do, I I really, I loved it the first time. I I loved it this time. I thought it it's a phenomenal movie. It's really well done. We um, mm. I can get into all the reasons why in a little bit. Yeah. But it, it was, yeah. I was really excited when you said this one as one of the, oppor- uh, the possibilities, because I hadn't seen this since before Brian and I started our podcast. And I think my way, even just in the past, what, almost a year of doing the podcast, I feel like I'm much more open to a lot more things about movies more open mm-hmm. to be- being okay if the storyline is not linear or does not wrap things up in a nice little bow <laughs> being yep. okay that i don't get a movie and this one's straightforward so this one's easy to rewatch. but it is nice to kind of have like a new i don't know more mature or more more open-ended lens to look through and watch movies with so it's been really fun to go rewatch old ones i'd seen prior to the podcast and exercise some new muscles
0: Oh yeah, I I feel the same way. Where I mean, there's so many. There's a few things that you both said that I did definitely want to touch upon. But just in terms of that, like I've been able to revisit films that I haven't seen since like my late teens or early twenties, and like fast forward ten years,
2: yeah, <laughs> it's like right. oh
0: yeah, I'm seeing it completely differently as a full grown adult at this point, and just you know actually analyzing. There was a joke because I did go to film school, but when we first started, our prof was like from now on you're not going to be able to just sit and watch a movie like you just have <laughs> to analyze and we were all like okay yeah sure and she's like yeah movies are going to kind of in a way be ruined for you and then <laughs> because i went to the university close enough to where my parents lived. So i lived at home and i watched movies with my family and they hated watching movies with me because i'd be analyzing <laughs> that shot is for you know this and that they'd be like you need to leave the room Watch it separately from us. <laughs> <and> stop talking. <laughs> like, this so, is the
2: education we're paying for.
0: <laughs> essentially, exactly that. But we'll talk about this later uh, about Watergate and people's familiarity with it. So, I definitely want to remember to bring that up. But if you're ready, I'm ready to chat about all the president's men as yes. it relates to Gordon Willis and his beautiful photography of this film. And how absolutely the reason why he's my second cinematographer that I've tackled so far. And when I think of 70s American cinema, which is like my one of my all time favorite eras of just all Mm -hmm. cinema, it's just some of the best movies that ever came out is from this era. But when I think of the 70s, I often think of Gordon Willis and all the films Mm -hmm. that he shot, just so many huge classics. And this is another one when we talk about all the president's men and just the way it looks. Because it's essentially, it's a film about journalism. They're uncovering Mm -hmm. a conspiracy. And it's not a flashy movie at all, right? Because there's so much going on in this movie. There's so much information being presented to you. And you've got two stars that we all know. Although I don't know, maybe people younger than us may not know these two (laughs) people. But us and all the older people, we all know (laughs) these two people. So we're watching it for Red Forever, watching for Hoffman. and. But the photography is very simple, but it's still very beautiful. And what I love about it is the use of natural light in this film. Mm-hmm. So we've got minimal amount of locations because most of the time they're in their office because it's a workplace movie, essentially. So in their office. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're outside, sometimes they're in libraries. And then we've got the parking garage. If we want to talk about the office lighting, what Gordon Willis wanted to do was first they replicated this office in... Um, a studio in California. So they were mm-hmm. going to originally use the Washington Post, but they were like, we're spending so much time here. It's going to be too much. So let's replicate it. And they created the whole thing. And they wanted to specifically use those overhead lights that you see in offices, especially of that time. I think they've changed. The office I work in doesn't have such ugly lighting. <laughs> bad,
2: but <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure those leech like many, many chemicals now. They've got oh, the, yeah. like compact fluorescence. But <laughs> exactly. I can't Im- I can't. So, they, that was the primary source of lighting where, like, those weren't fake. Like, that was the actual. No. Wow. It's the okay. actual
0: lighting that, and he specifically was like, I want to have this. And I, the whole time, because I'm specifically looking at it in the, on this watch, I'm like, with those fluorescent esque lighting, you can tell it's real, but there's a softness to it. And it was somewhat corrected in post just to make what they did is they removed the greens of it. So, it made it less harsh to look at but it's still the actual fluorescent lights. How do you guys feel about that when you're watching this? Because there's so much of the film that's taking place within that office and it's kind of a harsh environment because it's so open-spaced and they have those lights kind of beaming on people as they're trying to uncover this conspiracy.
2: Yeah, that's amazing because, you know, office lighting typically is really soul-sucking like typically it's something where you know the biggest complaint is like oh my gosh get a desk lamp like I don't even turn on the overhead lighting in my office I have a window and I have a lamp um mm-hmm. because it's just miserable to be in I think this era particularly has some sort of visual quality to it I don't know anything about the technicals of this so you know don't be be, be gentle with me but <laughs> okay. I now that you're saying all of this, I can tell it's fluorescent lighting. Like I can, or at least was trying to be. I thought it was fake lighting that looked like fluorescent, but I could, it has that quality, and it kind of it it did put you in this mood. Obviously, it's an office, so you're seeing office things. You're thinking like professional, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like so bright or so dark or so sharp. It felt kind of like dull, a little. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to describe yeah. the quality of it because it feels no, I think kind of exactly that mundane like this there's this just the muda- mundanity of what they do and the office is just kind of what it is but not in this like spiral into the abyss that a corporate lighting setting could sometimes be
1: mm-hmm. yeah. i don't know
2: brian what'd you think
1: yeah so it's so interesting that all of the fluorescence and office and the brightness in contrast to gordon willis's other work like particularly like godfather part two or i recently saw manhattan and some of those like he does some work with tons of darkness like very low exposure characters shrouded in darkness silhouettes manhattan in particular there's a stunning sequence where all you can see is like a sliver of light in front of the two silhouettes of Diane Keaton and Woody Allen as they're talking. And so that's sort of his hallmark in some mm-hmm. ways. And so for this to be such a contrast and you get that a little bit in the like garage uh, sequences with deep throat, but he, he sets that up as like a a contrast to the bulk of the movie, which is set in this very bright office setting and he's not a particularly flashy cinematographer he can have some really stunning sequences occasionally but he the wonder the the magic of this movie to me is that it never seems boring and i think a lot of that is the cinematography and the way it's shot because it is a lot of just people talking in rooms and and you don't get well maybe we could get into that later but yeah it's <laughs> It's just the way it's shot is really captivating, but not in a way that draws attention to itself at all. So yeah, it's, it's really just really well done.
0: I mean, I, I agree with all that. Like, I think what you said is that it is kind of dull. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point because what I love about this movie is that it doesn't sensationalize sensationalize. Sorry. What's happening. Even the actors, Mm -hmm. because as we said, they're huge actors. They were huge actors at the time. It's not like they made a big actor. They don't seem like movie stars because the reporters weren't movie stars. They weren't even really that big or respected at the time. So, Mm -hmm. what makes it special is that it's just focusing on the story without making it seem like this huge, you know, made by a different director. Even today, it'd be like fast cutting. We got to cut between them, you know, going through Mm -hmm. all these different things just to make it seem. More interesting
2: than it is.
1: We need Mark Ruffalo shouting, "They knew." <laughs>
2: <laughs> don't hate on Mark Ruffalo, Brian. I
1: love Spotlight. It's a good movie, but it's very... Different. There's been
0: a lot of Spotlight yeah. talk recently <laughs> really? on the internet. I don't know why
2: or Twitter. <laughs> I, See, I just watched. I just rewatched Thirteen Going on Thirty last night, so I'm oh, just yeah? like. All yeah, heart of Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Ruffalo. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, I think if this, Brian and I were talking, we've been watching a lot of the like Oscar winners from the 90s. So like okay. Shank, The Color Purple, like good, good, good movies. But I feel like you watch them now and you're like, oh yeah, that was 1990s Oscar bait. Like if this movie were made in the 90s, it would be they would everyone would have a dramatic speech. Everyone would have yeah. their wife about to leave them. Like there would be like an intense personal backstory. It would be about like Woodward and Bernstein's character arc and how they're it's not quite anti-hero era yet, but it's like underdog mm-hmm. era. And this isn't that. Like you said, it's about the story because the story is so phenomenal, it's so iconic. I think what's the most interesting, and why it should just be about the story, is because as the story was happening, no one cared but Woodward and Bernstein. The the world didn't care about Watergate until it broke, and so I think the way that this is told really matches that. I know Mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with cinematography, except for it kind of does, because the cinematography in its mundanity matches that. This is simple. This is straightforward. This is not drama. It's a big deal, but it's not this huge thing and I love that it's so understated actually makes it more powerful I love it yeah no notes (laughs) exactly I mean everything
0: you said is just spot on like if we track back uh in my research so it was Redford who wanted to make this film and he was you know championing the story he chose the director and essentially Gordon Willis also to shoot this and he wasn't planning on being on it but because warner brothers was the production company they're like we need to start at this point because Mm -hmm. the story has broken so he was like okay fine i'll do it and they picked another huge person dustin hoffman william goldman wrote the script for this it's based off of bernstein woodward's book but goldman wrote this and essentially the first few drafts had a lot more of their background of just like scenes of them with women and their lives and stuff like that And it was Hoffman who was like, this is too much into their personal lives. No one cares about that because then it's turning into them. It's about the story. It's not about Mm -hmm. the two individuals breaking it per se. And as you said, I think it mirrors in the cinematography where it's like, this is what you're supposed to be focusing on without being too flashy. And what Brian was saying in terms of this being a more brightly lit compared to the rest of his stuff is I totally agree because... He's actually dubbed the Prince of Darkness. Yeah. like his nickname. <laughs> what a cool nickname. Right? I was like, I would yeah. love to be called the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> but there, there is obviously a few darker scenes in this film. So if we want to even talk about just the underground parking garage I can't. Uh, with
2: yeah.
0: deep throat. So I'm going to read a hopefully quick th- quote from gordon willis himself on that scene so he says the basic discussion we had on the look of the film was that we wanted what we wanted was poster art and that gives good relative uh relativity i like going from light to dark dark to light big to small small to big and good to evil so if you took those ideas and used them in a graphic way you make the right choices i thought it was good You go from that newsroom to Deep Throat in the parking garage. Deep Throat, I kept in the same creepy color, but in a different visual structure. But whenever we went, uh, wherever we went, we still went back to this poster art look. So I was reading that quote from him, and I hadn't thought of that, but then I can see it. I often, I, I, I love posters. I love poster art. And I often try, like one of my goals is to try and figure out the year that we stopped making good posters.
1: <laughs>
0: and I don't know when it was. The 70s still had great posters, a lot of 80s stuff. I have to blame the 90s. It had to have been in the 90s at some point where it went yeah. wrong. But the poster art, where it was just so visually striking, and I could see that's what he was going for in this, and specifically in those scenes. So as most of this movie is brightly lit. Apart from those where we can barely see Hal Holbrook, who's the actor who's playing D-throat in this, you can see like silhouette of his face, and you get that cigarette lighting scene, so, and it's just beautiful. I mean, I don't know how. You, I assume we all love the scene. How do you feel about how those contrasts and how you're like nowadays when that's done? It could be a detriment to what we're seeing, but in here, it just really adds another layer to the story.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like this was so phenomenal (laughs) like what this scene was was so good it has been and redone in like both homage and parody so much sense that you Mm -hmm. almost forget that this is so good until you watch it again and you're like oh that's why like that's why this this movie that scene that way that shot particularly has stood the test of time and so I had like forgotten for a split second that we were gonna have that scene. Um yeah. mm-hmm. until we did. And it was great. But I mean, I can think of like 10 things off up- Gilmore Girls does it. Like I can think of so mm. many shows that have done something like this or with, you know, the car alarm and then he's gone. And like that is I loved it. I can't imagine watching this for the first time without it having seen anything like it prior, like what that experience must have been if they got, if people got it, if they were confused mm-hmm. by it, if they were like, this is amazing, but it is just being so far removed from it and having so much between now and then happened that, that emulate it in some regard, um, I think makes it more special because you get to see just like what it originally should have been. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. I mean, all of the choices have narrative reasons behind them as well which is is great so the contrast between light and dark of light is the newspaper office where they're uncovering some of this stuff and then the dark is where you find out about the depths of the conspiracy Mm -hmm. like just that contrast has a narrative reason behind it which i think is important and then the other thing that stood out about the I don't know if it's the climactic one but one of the times that Redford's heading to the garage you get almost just 3 minutes of him like walking and on the way and you see him descend like several flights of stairs from this like long shot and it it's a decision that gives importance to that meeting like the mm-hmm. cuz everything is is cut and talking and moving forward and like not not quick paced but very consistently paced and then you just like pause with no dialogue for a period of time while you're leading up to this meeting it places narrative importance on the meeting in that way so i just yeah it all of the choices none of them are super flashy uh you know maybe you'd call the way Hal holbrook is lit in the garage flashy but it has a yeah. purpose behind it right so mm-hmm. yeah it's it's just all so good
0: with that era of the 70s in America where they were just so open to defying what had been you know set as essentially the framework of how a film should be within that genre and mm-hmm. just going past that so even you know the scene that you're talking about of watching him just walking towards a place Yeah. most films before that. And maybe now even post that we just cut that down because yeah. pe- they're like, people are going to get bored. But sometimes it's just like, you need to get also prepared with him. You need to follow along where he's getting prepared to meet this person, get this information and how he's you know dealing with that. So I appreciate mm-hmm. films like this. And I, yeah. I, I long for another era of like this in North American cinema specifically. Totally.
2: Yeah, I yeah. agree. I think that they like, they hold off on the drama as much as they need to. But this is a big deal in history. Like this deep throat coming forward is a big deal. There has to be some level of drama and it's not through a big speech. It's through this like veiled quiet speak where he says so much and what he's not saying. So I agree. This is kind of like the highest it gets in terms of on the mm-hmm. drama meter, but it's just enough to make it perfect.
0: One of the things I I want to chat about was camera work. You know, we're talking about how this there's two parts to this. One, just the way how it's very still. You know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of following people unless it needs to be following. There's not a lot of close-ups, kind of like a camera sitting there and it's allowing people to walk in and out of the frame but we're given what we need to see within that frame so i want to talk about the framing a bit later but in terms of the camera and the stillness of this camera and how that kind of works as us being the observer because we're observing these people get information and they're observing people they're trying to figure out information so the camera moves too much it can add a degree of confusion at least I think I would be confused as to what's happening who messes to follow. there's so much information being told it being still and allowing people to just come in out in and out as they need to because as we said this is a very dialogue heavy film allows you to follow along with the story because we're seeing people talk to each other so often how do you feel about the fact that we're just kind of a fly on the wall as we're not even a fly, because we're not even above, we're on the same level as these reporters and yeah. just sitting within
1: those conversations. Absolutely. What I was going to say is a lot of the shops are sort of straight on at the same height as the actors. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you've got some iconic movie stars, and so you want to give them space to... And Redford and Hoffman apparently did a lot with like interrupting each other and had memorized each other's lines so that they (laughs) could sort of improvise in that way. So there's just space given to all of these performances in that way. In contrast to something like, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like the West Wing cinematography (laughs) of just like all of this walk and talk stuff where just like the camera's moving while people are walking down the hallway. And like, that's one way to make people talking interesting, Mm -hmm. but this just gives space and permission to the performances to make it interesting rather than relying on, you know, some sort of tricks. so
2: Yeah. And I think from a narrative standpoint, I mean, the camera is a way that the audience learns what's going on. So if you have a camera that's moving a lot, that's showing you more than what the characters are seeing, that puts you as the viewer in a more omniscient standpoint. But because we're following the story, because we're following what Woodward and Bernstein are learning, we don't want the camera to teach us anything before they learn it because we're the story is their discovery so i yeah. think a, a minimal camera helps us kind of be at the same level of like what's going on um as the characters which makes it so much better because I, I mean there are movies where like you know something before they do and so you <laughs> get to see it unravel and that's a great thing the camera being omniscient helps you learn so much more but that's not what this story is i think that yeah. The, the, yeah i i really appreciate minimal camera work it's not like it's like zeroing in on the thing and you're waiting for them to look for you know
1: yeah. um, <laughs> there's
2: no foreshadowing of the, the the rickety stare that someone's gonna step and fall down there's no foreshadowing <laughs> in this movie um, no which is great yeah i mean i think that's
0: like spot on with both of you said. Like I think that's why Willis was the best cinematographer for this film, because he's never been sort of the foreshadowing type of being like, let's zero in on this because we gotta lead the the audience a certain mm-hmm. way. He, you know, treats the audience with enough respect to be like, we're going to see it. We're going to get it on our own time, whether we get it right away or later. And because it's, you know, there's so much going on, it's You don't need to be navigating, you know, it's better for us to follow along with them because they have all the information that we're going to get anyway. So we don't need them to, you know, show us beforehand so that we're trying to wait to see when they catch up to what we know.
2: Yeah. It was a long week, you know, like you don't want yeah. the story. you don't want to do the work no. before the story. Sometimes you want the story yeah. just come to you. Take it in. Don't make me work for it, <laughs> especially when it's told by Robert Redford. I mean, I can watch yeah. him do anything. So <laughs> it's exactly that. It's
0: also relying on the fact that the star power, star power of these actors is like we could watch both of them just talk about whatever half the time i was like i don't even know what you're
2: talking about but i'm here <laughs> for the ride so <laughs> you, could, uh, be- you could say whatever you want <laughs> when we turned it on i was like brian get ready for like a 10 minute detour where felicia and i just talk about how handsome robert redford is and uh, brian's <laughs> <yeah>. like that's <laughs> fine i'll just talk about how handsome dustin Hoffman is <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> i mean if you want to do a mini detour i was gonna say because like they're both they're both I I think they're both handsome in their own individual ways. You Absolutely. obviously got Redford, who's just he's classically handsome.
2: He's just like captain of the all American football team. Takes his girl to the sock hop. You know, but then he
0: seems like he's also a genuine guy. And you're like, yeah, I trust him. He's yeah. not gonna break my heart. And if he does, whatever.
2: You know, <laughs> I'll spend. <laughs> It'll the be rest a story. <laughs> exactly i'll take something about loving and lost rather than (laughs) not loved at all something like that
0: (laughs) i'll i'll take anything i can get with Robert redford um (laughs) hoffman too though i think he's great and he's great to watch especially this era of hoffman i love the way that they're playing off each other and no one's trying to play up one another because If you know anything about Hoffman, he's always going to want to be the star of the show. He doesn't care if Redford is next to him. He's like, I'm the hot one. But they both Mm -hmm. knew their place (laughs) in this movie. Well, it's
2: like, yeah, I'll take all these girls. And you take all these girls. And then we'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll divide. (laughs) Yeah. I... Just in that, vein. I love the scene where, and I can't remember which is doing which. I think it's that Redford's character has written up a piece, and he comes in his office, and Hoffman's character is just like ripping it to shreds, and like it's like, well, you miss this part, and you miss this part, yeah. you know. And at first, you're like, oh gosh, is this gonna be like a dude fight where they're just like, my, I'm bigger, I'm, you know. No, he's just like, okay, you're right. It is better. And then they've teamed up and moved on. And yeah. I hope that's how it went in real life. I hope that wasn't why watched because you know it's for the story. But I, I loved that scene. I, I thought it was going to go a completely different direction the first time I watched this because Lesser Media has done that. Yeah, which, I, which is great. Big buddies. <laughs> that's all you can ask for.
0: <laughs> yeah. In a film, there is one flashy scene mm-hmm. shot that I want to talk outside of the underground scene. It's one that people talk about the most and one that I did remember quite vividly from the first time watching it. I'll read a quote from Gordon Wilson how they did that because there's a lot of technical jargon in it. But it's the scene where they're in the Library of Congress and they're flipping through all the stuff. They're looking through all the files and then it zooms out. So that's the flashiest one oh, where you're yeah. getting that zoom out and it goes up to the top of the dome of the Library of Congress because it's so different from everything else in this film. You don't get that many overhead shots of anything in the city, whether where they are, but we get that one. And they were talking about doing that scene. Gordon Wills is like, I love the idea. I don't know if I can do this because this is, we're talking about this is the seventies, right? They're, They're doing it on film. This is, there's no digital aspect to this. So, like, Mm -hmm. we need to figure out how we can do this technically. And we can't see it right away (laughs) after it's done. So, we don't know what it's going to look like. So, they did this in two shots. But essentially, what he says, how they did it, was that uh, the way the shot was finally accomplished was with a remote-controlled cable system and a radio-controlled focus and switch system. I'm reading all this, and I'm like, I don't really understand how it's done. Uh, But I trust him. All right. He says, (laughs) taglines... had been used on the primary cable in order to correct the trajectory of the camera as it did not start dead center of the library but ended up the way at the top of the dome and the primary cam uh, cable oh. holding the camera was attached to an electric winch at the top of the library and on cue it was it was slowly put into motion and raised to the top of the dome the trick was coordinating the tag lines with the main cable and i was like that sounds great I admire your ability to even figure that out. I don't really understand. I'm like trying to visualize how that was done. But he's talking later on in the quote. I won't read the rest, but he says, yeah, we didn't know what it looked like. So we just had to trust that it worked. And when we saw it, we're like, yeah, we got it. And they really did get it. (laughs) But this is someone with skill. Um, how do you feel about that shot right
2: yeah you gotta love like the redneck engineering ingenuity <laughs> of like old hollywood even new hollywood like pre-digital of just like a yeah let's just get an elaborate pulley system and hope for the best <laughs> um, exactly <laughs> and i i mean did it say how many takes or how many shots they took they did
0: two because it was such an elaborate thing where they're like yeah. okay we definitely doesn't make sense to do one, but let's do two because it takes so much time. Let's figure it out, and they they got mm. it.
2: So that's phenomenal. And they were so actually beautiful. in the Library of Congress for that. Like they didn't. Okay, I yeah. was like they didn't make that set too. Making no, an no. office is one thing. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it that scene always stands out to me because it's like, oh, you're so used to like the staticness, and you're like, okay, I wasn't expecting it to get like that. Is this the way the yeah. film's moving? And it doesn't, and that's great. You just need that one shot. And the reason why they wanted that was to make it seem like they were like a needle in the haystack of all the information. So it works. It's a great shot. What I love in this film also is the framing. And because Mm -hmm. we're getting such static, you know, camera shots, what we're looking at, we're looking at the actors, but we're looking at what's going on in the background. Because it's an office most of the time. There's people working in the background. We're hearing the the clicking and the clacking of typewriters. Mm -hmm same people walking around, and there's a lot of great compositions in the rooms that they're in, either woodstein and uh Woodstein is with uh, what at some point they call it <laughs> woodward and Bernstein <laughs> they're alone or they're together. The framing is just great and allows you to kind of take in how deep they get in this story. Mm-hmm. so how do you feel about just the way the shots are composed throughout this film?
1: Yeah, I feel like it's not. Trying to remember back, but not a whole lot of close ups. You mostly get sort of medium shots or some iconic long shots, but medium shots that show two or three people and just let them communicate. It's almost a little bit more Japanese in the way that things are shot in some ways, where Japanese cinema, they tend to put the camera further out and let the drama happen without like bringing the camera in close to show it so yeah it it's really interesting way to do it and and a little bit counter to even some of the other new hollywood stuff that's happening at the time that definitely is using close-ups and and such
0: yeah. So I, the last cinematographer I did was Robbie Mueller and he was big on not doing close ups unless they were necessary because
2: mm-hmm.
0: you only really need to get it up in someone's business, essentially, when it's important <laughs> or if the story calls for that. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And in this film, it's a lot of not, it's like medium shots or further, further on. And they used a lot of split diopter shots, which mm-hmm. harkens back to my. Brian De Palma series that I did. That, that's his favorite type of shots with die after. And just Gordon Willis is like, what he loved the most about this was like, you know, the application of like depth and he's like, what was happening in the backgrounds of the main leads was just as important as what was happening in the foregrounds. Mm-hmm. He's like, yes, we're listening to them speak, but I need you to know that this is, they're just two people working on a story and these other people in the background are also working on different things Mm because that's how it was at that time they wanted to recreate what was happening in that time and moment as opposed to it it being like oh we now know Mm -hmm. how big it got it wasn't big at the time Hmm. so i think it's just great in the way
1: and they're not like the most important people at the washington post The yeah, all of the the office stuff is fantastic. Of all of the background stuff, the close ups of the rotary telephones and typewriters, and all of that is it's so tactile, um, that it just works really well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just now rethinking about um, the passion of Joan of Arc that's just like Mm. right up in your face, but that made sense for that movie, doesn't work for this movie, Mm -hmm. and that's great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think. It's really dependent on film, story, and then mm-hmm. sometimes when you have stars, if you're close up in their face and the story doesn't call for it, it's because you're trying to utilize their star power when it doesn't need right. to be. You're leaning on their them too much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why Redford didn't want to have stars, but you know, Warner Brothers is like, I'm not doing this. I'm not giving you money if we don't have stars. That's just how the system works, unfortunately, but I, I also am not complaining. <laughs> cause, totally, yeah, we get two great <laughs> actors, so <laughs> I'm not going to complain there. I do want to reserve, like I usually with the cinematography series, obviously talk about the look and the feel of the film, and reserve a section on performances and stories because you can't really talk about a movie without that. Uh, but before we get into that, are there any
2: parts of the visual storytelling that we haven't covered that you want to chat about? Brian, I'm gonna steal one that you talked about when we watched it. You commented, go for um, it. there's another zoom out scene where they're driving in a car and it zooms out from the car. And Brian was like, We had to, we went back and oh, watched it again. Yes. Cause Brian was like, Was that two mm-hmm. takes? Like was it in the car and then they cut to outside the car, but it like it truly mm-hmm. and you go all the way back. And I don't know how they did that one. If that's a helicopter situation.
1: It's, I'm sure it must have been. Yeah. If it's a,
2: like a like a traffic cam. You know, super yeah. I think that did a similar thing to um kind of what the the chaos of the the busyness more than chaos of the newsroom thing did because they're mm-hmm. just one car in the whole yeah. world you know like you're in their car and you're in their story but then you zoom out and it shows that like no it's just it's just one thing in the grand scheme of all the things yeah yeah but it was a it was a neat shot that didn't you'd assume even if you're in the helicopter now, it'd be like so shaky. Like, how do you not <laughs> drop a camera out the side of the helicopter or, or however yeah. you filmed it? But
0: I don't know how they did those things. I didn't, I didn't see anything. You know, technical wise written about that, but I do love that shot. And there's a similar shot. Cause I'll also be cl- uh, covering Clute on this series. And uh, there's another similar Clute. shot. Yeah. Where it's just, it's Jane Fonda and one of her men. And looks like you're in that room with them but then it zooms out and the camera's been outside the whole time and you're like mm.
2: wait a minute this i don't see a cut oh. happening so how did you <laughs> do that it makes me yeah. think have you guys did episode of the office this is such a tangent <laughs> where um they're gonna shoot like a local ad and michael thinks that he gets to like design the whole ad and he's like Start. There's a girl playing on the I playground. You about, zoom yeah. out. It's actually the playground of the world's largest prison. You zoom out. It's oh, wow. actually this. You zoom out, <laughs> and the people. I mean, the the directors of the of the advertisement are like, yeah, that's really ambitious. Like they're trying to placate, him, <laughs> but it's just like this like series of like zooming and discovering new things. And I I like to think that Michael Sp- Scott was inspired by the excellent zooming out of this movie. Mm. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm sure he was so it's as you said like now it's different and some cinematographers some directors are still working within that scope of old school hollywood but
2: mm-hmm.
0: we don't see this anymore where they actually had to do the thing as opposed right. to like we'll shoot stuff and then we'll fix it in post <laughs> so yeah they didn't yeah, have again.
2: post back then or <laughs> no. much much few, fewer yeah. post uh abilities Exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> My last thought on the cinematography was the the actual Watergate sequence. I think is mm-hmm. so funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's shot like a heist movie, and you've got sort of a history of that, particularly internationally to this point with like Rafifi and then the Melville stuff like Le Cercle Rouge and Le Deuxemme Souffle, like the... The quiet, like, watching professionals go about their business in the heist. And that that's usually, like, the midpoint of the movie. And it's, like, fascinating to see them work and be experts and pull off the heist. And then at the end, their pride is their downfall sort of thing. Is mm-hmm. sort of the structure of a heist movie. And this, <laughs> like, flips that on their head where the people trying to conduct the heist are not professional and it's just like a a joke of like oh shoot we've got to turn off the radio and then they miss that you know people are coming their way and they get like caught behind this desk all like crouched down (laughs) it's just so funny to me like the inversion of the heist sequence but it's shot you know you've got these huge shots across the the building and it's shot in the same style as some of those really iconic heist sequences but just the the bad criminals It's really funny.
0: It's exactly that. I'm so glad that you mentioned Melville because I thought that too. <laughs> and like I love Melville's films. I love Heist films. And how he always had like characters who were professionals, but it's like you're gonna mess up. Yeah. Right. Just because we're human beings. So I i did see that. And I don't know if you've seen straight Time with Hoffman. Mm-hmm. It's two years after this. And uh, it's him, Harry Dean Stan, and Gary busey It's it's I think mm. you both would really love this movie. It's so good. It's like peak American cinema. It's, it's just, it's my, in my opinion, Dustin Hoffman's best. And it's another heist film. He's like a petty thief, but he tries to get bigger. It's like this where it's like, uh, they've planned it out, planned it out, but human beings mess up. So that's just a side note recommendation, but I see the, the Melville stuff in that scene. I do find yeah. that, that, that Watergate scene very funny. It's just like, wow, you guys, did you plan this (laughs) out or what's going on here? We're not all on the same page, doesn't seem like it.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: I love that. Wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Well, it be. we have talked about the story throughout and I'm sure it'll come up as we talk about performances because we've got Redford, we've got Dustin Hoffman. These are two huge actors and they're putting on great performances, but they're very understated. They're not trying to overact one another we also got jason Robards, who's great mm-hmm. as their boss i know i keep gushing about the 70s but it's like everyone's just kind of very chill and doing their thing and no one's yeah. trying to put on like an oscar Beatty performance mm-hmm. and maybe it was seen as oscar Beatty then but in at our times we're just like these are just people doing their jobs <laughs> they're doing yeah. very well how do you feel about their performances and as it relates to this story and what it calls for
2: I totally agree. I think that, like, they didn't need to be over the top. Like, the understated performances are so much stronger and, frankly, harder to pull off. And they did it phenomenally. This could have been so... If it, Again, if it were made now, in the 90s, yeah. it, you know, any time in there, it could have been big. And it could have been done well. Like, you know, you've seen over-the-top dramatic performances really just do great. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't need that. This the story is so good. The investigation, the way it's shot, like everything around it that big acting would totally compete with anything of this. You have the perfect melding of 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 simply shot, tently and intelligently lit and and framed and everything. And then just like straightforward acting. No bells and whistles, two handsome men who are good actors telling a great story. In yeah. a great setting it's phenomenal no notes <laughs>
0: <laughs> i agree
1: <laughs> yeah i tend to gravitate towards understated performing i love uh robert brisson mm-hmm. all of the italian neo neo realist stuff with non-professional actors i i find really compelling and i think the reason is that when you have a performance that's a little more understated you can provide yourself like you start thinking for yourself what is this person actually feeling like what's under the surface here and you can sort of place yourself in their shoes rather than like the movie telling you exactly how they're feeling it it gives a little bit more room for interpretation and that draws you in more because you it becomes like a you're placing yourself in the story by imagining how they're feeling. So I tend to respond to that sort of thing and, and definitely found that here of for Woodward and Bernstein, especially like the, you, you could have more like scenes of them being worried for their jobs and like, Oh no, this, you know, they're going to shut us down and all of this stuff. And you get that, like worry because the the movie seeds those ideas a bit, but you just see it in it allows you to imagine those things rather than making it explicit,
2: yeah, that's a really good point. I think also when you're like so captivated by how well something is acted in the moment it takes you out of. Mm-hmm. The story, and it makes you like whisper to your husband, like, "Hey, Brian, they're probably going to get nominated for best actor for this." You know, like you're gonna, and it might be a really, really great performance, and it might be like, like I think, I think big acting definitely has a place, and I love watching it. Like, I'm a drama junkie, I love that, Mm -hmm. but um, it has a place, and it's not in this movie, and it -hmm. it 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 can take you out, but especially something that I'm looking at the most recent Best Oscar winners like. Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, so good. But that's a biopic about a person, so like you need to see him that him acting as that person really, really well. Yeah. You know, you don't need to see Ben Bradley being phenomenal. You need to see yeah. the story. So yeah, I I don't know. I think that it's it's it would do it injustice to have any bigger performance because it would take you away from what you're actually there to see. As good as it would have been, like they would have done a yeah. great job, but that's not the point. <laughs>
0: it's exactly that i agree with both of you it's like we i've said already that like a dare to establish actors we are fully aware what we're they're capable of we don't need a scene where they're yelling at each other they're yelling at someone you know the famous Mm -hmm. is uh is it a good performance or are they just yelling Type of <laughs> it's like there's no yelling in this, and it, it just doesn't call for it because are mm-hmm. the two people who are probably stressed out of their mind and they don't have time for all the yelling. <laughs> One of the last things I wanted to talk about before I move to the last segment. So I'm Canadian. <laughs>
2: hmm. I've heard I've heard a little bit of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, all really?
2: right. Yeah, just a few little things. I'm like she's northern. <laughs> yeah. So. Prior
0: to watching this movie for the first time, I I definitely heard of Watergate, had no idea what it was about. Mm. So I learned about it through this film. I am only speaking from my experience, probably most Canadian experience of just knowing somewhat about it and probably this being the educator of it. Is this a thing that most American people know of, of maybe a certain era or a certain age? And do you think that the film, the story does a good enough job of explaining? what it is that happened if you are just coming into it fully new and have never heard of this before
2: that's
1: a good oh, point interesting
2: i i mean everyone know. well i listen to a lot of political podcasts so i might be i'm trying to not let that yeah i think that everyone's heard of watergate everyone's heard of like okay. watergate being used like twitter gate or you know yeah podcast gate you know like something bad happens it's a gate and that's kind of like a running Mm -hmm. joke i think everyone knows like i am not a crook and like richard nixon you know leaving the white house People would know
1: that yeah he resigned because of watergate yeah
2: and i think Uh i i mean i remember learning in high school classes like about the burglary and kind of what happened i think the cover-up is pretty intricate so i mean i still could not tell you like start to end what happened and i know a lot more than most people about this because i can't stop listening to podcasts that's nothing about me (laughs) i just really love political podcasts (laughs) so i don't think that this movie tells you like a documentary version story of what happened and i don't think that it even tells you enough to like jog memory um yeah but at the same time like we all didn't live through the story breaking I think maybe Mm -hmm. if we were our age now in 70, happened in 72. So even in like, Mm -hmm. you know, between in the early mid 70s, if we were, you know, in our 30s and we're paying attention, these names would be more scandalous, right? These names would make more sense. Like maybe if you lived in Boston recently and watched Spotlight, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Yeah. that. I think it's more of a memory jogger if you already know it than like an educational experience.
1: Okay. Mm -hmm
2: i don't know what do you think brian that's fair.
1: yeah like most of the names of the politicians and even like the name of nixon's chief of chief of staff at the end who's like their big get of he he was involved you know i don't recognize those names so i'm not super <laughs> familiar with the intricacies of the story that's presented in in this movie it just be the more like watergate they broke into the democrat national convention and then the stuff with the cover-up the tapes nixon like that that arc of things that's not really covered here is more common knowledge i'd say
2: it's like falling into pop culture as kind of like a national shame and joke yeah okay yeah
0: <laughs> now I, i'm glad that you you both said all that because i was like I when I first watched this is because as you both said, it's like it's on the list of films you should watch. And I like films Mm -hmm. about journalism. I don't even know if I knew that it was based on a real story when I probably first watched it. And watching it, I was like, okay, is this a real story or is this like fictionalized version? Because I just absolutely wouldn't have not known a single (laughs) thing. The only thing I knew this is probably embarrassing, but the only thing I knew about Richard Nixon was from the movie Dick. I love that yeah. movie,
2: <laughs> <Pearson> I <died laughs> love that movie We're their deep throat. Like I think yeah. that is one such a good like uh, historical satirical. Brian, have you watched that yet? I know I've put it on no. our list a lot. It keeps oh, it's like so much fun popping on streaming, and then I'm finally like, like "We should watch it," and it's gone. Can you add that mm-hmm. to our list, Brian? Because I, yeah, uh, I will. So good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so much fun but that's yeah. all i knew about richard nixon so i was like i kind of knew that he was somewhat known as like a bit of a joke within american history but i didn't know so i was like the first time i watched it i loved the film but i was confused because I, like, I don't know if i'm following this this and then watching this time because i now i have a bit more knowledge on it it's okay i can see what's happening
2: Yeah, it's always really funny when you're taking in some sort of movie and you realize like way too late, like, wait, is this based on something? Yeah. (laughs) It took me to like the third watch of Goodfellas to be like, oh, he's a real guy. Yeah. (laughs) I just thought it was just like very, you know, indirectly or very directly homage to general crime stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's more fair than this. Like, I probably should know more about it. It's fine. You're Canadian.
0: I think that's all the President's meant. I think we did it just as if you're ready, I'm (laughs) ready to move to still talking about it, but also talking about other movies Yeah, uh, to move to the last portion of the show called End Credits. So the first question for both of you, and this is relating to Gordon Willis. So if someone who's just kind of you know, starting to get into the look and feel of cinematography, they're like, I hear about Gordon Willis, and they may not have seen the films that he's worked on, and they're specifically looking for a Gordon Willis shot film. What film would you recommend that they start with, and why?
1: Mm. Ooh.
2: Well, Mm. I mean, I I feel like I should caveat that I'm not going to point anyone towards anything Woody Allen. Just like... Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's fair. If you haven't seen any, like it's probably just just don't like it's just you know I'm sure it's really good, but it's it's like the do you listen to Michael Jackson or not? It's it's eh. yeah. Um, so I would say the Godfather. I would, I mean, you know. especially like if you if you're looking to get into cinematography, that means you're probably also looking to watch a really good movie independent of cinematography. So you should just watch the Godfather. <laughs> but I point yeah. people to the Godfather out of, out of the drop of a hat. So yeah. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Brian?
1: Yeah, so the way Manhattan is shot is just fantastic. That is a Woody Allen and problematic, both in its plot and just because he directed it. But fantastic Diane Keaton performance as well. And I don't think that one person being terrible should ruin being able to enjoy everyone else who worked on the movie, like Gordon Willis and Diane Keaton and such. So I'd recommend that from a cinematography point of view. Another. Pakula that I really love that Gordon Willis worked on was the parallax view. I think it's wonderful and fantastic. And there's one sequence in there, this like brainwashing sequence that's stunning. So definitely would recommend that one as well.
2: Yeah, I'm really intrigued to watch The Money Pit. It's later (laughs) in his career, it's Tom Hanks and Shelley Long, 1986 base it's, it's a remake of Cary grant's film uh mr blandings builds his dream house which i've heard of that but it's also oh, okay. uh i've seen that co-produced by steven spielberg
1: so so interesting yeah,
2: yeah. I, I mean you know why not one. honestly i love when any sort of artist is at the end like not the end of their yes. career i mean they're downhill but just like they've done whatever they want to do and they're just gonna like like a good example is Isabella Rossellini had a guest <laughs> spot on 30 Rock. And you're like, okay, yeah. Isabella Rossellini, like, what are you doing, <laughs> lady? But why not have fun? You know? Exactly. So I think, like, yeah, I think Gordon Miller, he was just like, I could use some money. I'll go do this and hang out with Tom Hanks. Sounds great. You know? Right. Maybe it was for other reasons, but I like to think it was just him saying, let's go out with the bang. Cause it was a sec. It was, well, he had a couple after that, but.
0: Mm-hmm, but it's a later yeah. one.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's so funny.
0: Well, two things. I want to touch upon that first, and then I'll talk about mine. (laughs) But it's funny, because I was thinking of Michael Chapman, uh, and Michael Chapman was camera operator for Gordon Willis before he Mm -hmm. became his own thing, a cinematographer. And Michael Chapman, for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with the name, he shot films like Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, uh, and so many other great films. But one of his later films was Space Jam and <laughs> that's I love
2: phenomenal. That.
0: <laughs> i'm love i just like i love space yeah film. and i love radiant bowl and taxi driver it's like it's the i just that's what i love about you know studying cinema or cinematography is just how fast the films are you go from one yeah. spectrum to the next and i i love that it's so funny the films that i was going to recommend are you both have mentioned and i was going to i went for the spectrum oh. of these black and white photography i was like manhattan for sure uh stardust Mm -hmm. memories is also a great one but manhattan would be the one because whatever you feel about the story or Woody allen and whatnot that's all valid but the photography of this film and it's film that i love but the photography is just phenomenal and then if we're going to go along the this man is the prince of darkness you gotta show them the godfather's films like you Uh, got to you have to let them know this is what he can do in color and then they can go from there Mm -hmm. on so those would be my two recommendations for where to start if you're going Gordon Willis route. So second and last question of the show is a double bill. This is not even necessarily related to Gordon Willis. It's just about the film itself. If you're going to pair this with a, another film, you're making a double bill. You can give me more than one. But what film or films would you pair this one with? And what's the the reasoning behind
2: that pairing or pairings?
1: Ooh, I should have prepared in advance here. <laughs> okay. Do you have something, Hannah?
2: That is a tricky one. I mean, I'm assuming you're gonna want to do another New Hollywood, right? Yeah. So, if you're like able to handle some incel energy, you could do a taxi driver. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I feel like that would be a good one. That's good. Yeah. That's a really good question. I don't really know why, other than they're just they're running off the same vibes. But taxi driver is kind of the like. Yeah, I'm very vibes oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, Taxi Driver can be very, it's the more like big performance end of things or just big story end of things compared to this very understated in both acting and and everything. Taxi Driver is just so big and so crazy, but there's so many common elements as well in terms of like the way it looks and the way it feels and the time it was created.
0: I think that would be a great pairing because it's like it's if you're just going to like, hey, I want to show you two films from this era
1: mm-hmm.
0: that are important. Did it best. Why not watch yeah. them together?
1: What my mind goes to is pairing it with like a, a legal conspiracy thriller because that's the other, you know, you've mm-hmm. got like the journalism angle and the legal angle for how to unravel things. So... I'll go with Anatomy of a Murder, I feel like, would be a sort of fun mm-hmm. pairing with this. Yeah, or uh, the like Pelican Brief. Uncovering <laughs> the Truth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another Pakula, isn't mm-hmm.
2: it? It is. Yeah. Oh, well, then that was a really good answer.
1: The Pelican yeah. Brief. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect.
2: Yeah, I think there's so
0: many avenues that you can go through with the pairing. I just love hearing this. the answers to this question. To you know, there's some that are more obvious and some that people mm-hmm. come up with where I'm like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. And I just mainly the reasoning why. I thought of a few that I'm just going to rapid fire because they're kind of all along the same. It's either like, you know, political conspiracy film or it's politically mm-hmm. driven or it has to do with journalism. So in terms of like political kind of conspiracy ones, I thought of Seven Days in May, which is John Frankenheimer in 1964. You got a huge cast in that one, too. It's like Burt Lancaster, Ava Gardner, and so on. And it's sort of in the same vein as Manchurian Candidates. I think those two are really great. I don't know which one I would think is better, but I went with Seven Days in May because it has Burt Lancaster. (laughs) So that's my go too.
1: I'm assuming you're meaning the original Manchurian Candidate, not the demi-remake.
0: No, although I, I don't mind the remake. But
1: I, it's not as bad as some would say, but it's not my favorite Demi by a long shot. (laughs)
0: No, no, definitely not. But it's definitely not as bad as some people would like to think it is. Another political one to be All the King's Men, which stars Roderick Crawford and it's directed by Robert Rosen. It's 1949. It's just another of, if you went uh, along with All the President's Men, we're focusing on kind of Nixon in that story as opposed to. The Watergate, of just how someone can get up to that position in the world. And another one would be The Best Man, which is a uh, Franklin J. Schaffner, 1964. That's Henry Fonda and another huge cast of politics and what goes behind the scenes. It's somewhat similar to Parallax View, The Best Man. Actually, so if you like Parallax nice. View, I'd highly recommend The Best Man. The last one, because I've talked about too many movies now, is another journalism one and it's kind of showing the darker side of journalism because there's parts in all presidents men where they're visiting people and they're trying to get information from them and you can see that they're like i cannot give you this because it's going to ruin my life and it's some people it has ruined their life so if we're going around if you're like yeah i want to watch another movie about that (laughs) i'd recommend ace in the hole which is billy wilder 1950 oh Mm. i
1: love that movie yeah okay yeah
2: so and I'm, I'm thinking of other journalism films. I mean, you could do Spotlight. Yeah, you could. I like Spotlight. You could do, yeah. I and mean, I feel like Spotlight's taken a real real, uh, real hit in this podcast, but I liked it too. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, yeah, that's good. Or you could do, it's definitely not as acclaimed, but from a story standpoint, did you guys see She Said? It was about um, it, yeah. the journalist who took down Weinstein? I thought. I mean, I thought it was well done. It was definitely. It was a little more dramatic in in performance. Um, a little, but I think you know, it's it's an added element of like something is taking down a very powerful man. Mm-hmm. People are reluctant to believe it. People are reluctant to come forward. But I think, it, and from a cinematography standpoint, it's not not something I would put together. But if you're just looking at like, yeah, the movie taking down powerful men <laughs> through journalism, and that's your theme. Just run with it. Exactly. <laughs> It's been on my list. Yeah. I do want to watch it. I like Carrie Mulligan. so Yeah. It was good. I mean, it wasn't like phenomenal. I've also read the book. It's based okay. on, so they actually, you know, these two women broke the story and then they wrote a book about it and then mm. it became a movie. So it's very along the same vein. So actually that would be pretty interesting to yeah. compare the two. But the book was was really interesting. It was very detailed. Yeah. And the movie obviously is never as detailed, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know. Good
0: bring it into today's world and how things yeah really bring it to this millennia <laughs> exactly well brian and hannah thank you so much i had a great time talking about it's a heavy enough movie but i think we did a great job and it was just great chatting to both of you
2: about yeah, it yeah, thanks for having us pleasure. on this was a blast
0: seeing faces in movies is an official podcast of the royal film club it's hosted and edited by Felicia and with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at com, or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Clute.